Welcome to the latest episode of Bureau 42's Silver Screen Superman series, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the character by going through all of the Silver Screen incarnations. This month, we're talking about Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Personally, when I come out of a movie, I ask myself three questions that help me evaluate how good the movie was. The first question is, does the movie entertain me? The second, does the movie intellectually challenge me or make me question some of my beliefs or behaviors? And third, does this seem to be the movie that the filmmakers would have made given unlimited time and money? I can enjoy a movie if even one of those questions are yes, especially the first two. Doesn't necessarily have to be all three of them. Now, the last time we had a Christopher Reeve Superman movie in Superman 3, the answer to those questions were one, for does it entertain me? Well, when I was six, it definitely entertained me when that was the first and only live-action incarnation of the character I'd seen. Today, it, not really. It doesn't really fit what I know about Superman from everywhere else. Second, does the movie intellectually challenge me for Superman 3? The answer is no. The third one, does the movie seem to be the movie the filmmakers would have made given unlimited time and money? In the case of Superman 3, the answer was yes. That is the movie they intended to make. Superman 4 is a little bit different. For does the movie entertain me? The answer is no, not really. Does the movie intellectually challenge me? Again, no, not really. Does this seem to be the movie the filmmakers would have made given unlimited time and money? The answer to that is hell no. There are a few reasons for that. At this point, the Salkinds were looking to get out of the Superman business. They looked at Superman 3, although it was profitable, they could see law diminishing returns kicking in, and they were ready to part with the project. Now, at the same time, a company called Canon Films was looking to try to turn itself into a major studio instead of just a B-list company. So they came to an agreement, and Canon bought the rights to Superman from the Salkinds. They also bought the rights to make Spider-Man based on James Cameron's script, and James Cameron went direct. They couldn't quite come to an agreement on that one as quickly as this one. There's rumors I've heard about that that I might talk about in a later podcast if we get into the Spider-Man movies as well. In any event, Canon then partnered with Warner Brothers, and they were doing something that's a lot more common now in terms of sharing the financial risk. So Canon would put up the front-end money and fund the production, while Warner Brothers would do the back-end money and fund the theatrical and home video distribution. Coming about two or three years after Supergirl, that seemed like a wise choice. Christopher Reeve and a lot of the people involved were not satisfied with the way Superman 3 came out either. Being a fan of the character and looking over the history, Christopher Reeve wanted to answer one of the biggest questions in the mythos. If Superman is so powerful, why doesn't he just fix everything that's wrong with the world? So he decided to address that through the hot topic of the day in 1987, which was the nuclear arms race. So he helped outline the story and he worked hard to bring back the old cast. They invited Richard Donner back as director. They also invited Tom Mankiewicz back as writer, but they both turned the project down and wanted to move on to other things. So they brought in a new writing team of Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal, who were just coming off the success of Jewel of the Nile. And they worked with both Chris Reeve and DC Comics, and the group of them together were able to bring back Gene Hackman and Jackie Cooper, Margot Kidu, and Mark McClure. So they got the major cast back. Uh, they also brought in some new cast members. Mark Pillow was the villain. This was his first and only film credit in terms of theatrical releases. He did a couple of other TV series as well, just a few episodes here and there after that on two different shows. They brought in Sam Wanamaker and Mariel Hemingway as the new owners of the Daily Planet. And Sam Wanamaker was a huge theatrical performer, not as in feature films, but as in the New York and Broadway stage. And John Cryer was brought in in a Ned Beatty-type role as Lex Luthor's nephew Lenny. That was a deliberate idea to try and reach a younger audience than they could with Ned Beatty. John Cryer is probably best known these days for being one of the stars of Two and a Half Men. They even brought in the special effects teams from Superman's 1 and 2 through the pre-production process. Now, films have pre-production and production. Pre-production is when you're writing the scripts, you're figuring out what your shooting locations are going to be, you're finding your shooting schedules, you're putting the 
cast together, this is when you do the major planning. And this is how you figure out the way you're going to bring the movie in under the budget that you have available. Just before full production began, Canon Films started to get into some financial troubles, and they cut the budget from $36 million to $17 million. And this was far enough along in the process that it was almost impossible to change the script and change the shooting schedules or shooting locations. The special effects team could not come to an agreement for the salaries under the new budget, so they walked, and a new team came in based on the same scripts. The consequences of this are clearly visible in pretty much every single flying effect in the entire film. There are bright borders, there are black borders, there are times when all the yellow is drained because they were doing it in front of a yellow screen and didn't reproduce that. So Superman's S on his chest and his cape have large white regions instead of yellow regions. So a lot of the issues with this movie are just flat-out lack of budget. Not all of them. There are some parts that I don't think would work anyway. There is a sequence where they basically restore Lois Lane's memory that was wiped out in Superman 2. And Superman does this because at this point he's having a crisis of faith. He received a letter from a young boy asking him why he doesn't stop the nuclear weapons race. And he's scared. He wants this shut down. And Clark figures... Lois is the only one that Superman can talk to, so he reveals his secret identity so that he can talk to her. That's what he says. Now, to me, Superman could talk to Lois without revealing his secret identity. It also bothers me because he doesn't actually talk to her. He reveals the secret identity, they go flying again, comes back and says, you're the only one I can talk to. She says, well, you'll do the right thing, you always will. He says, thank you, and then wipes her memory with another kiss. So they haven't really talked anything out. When he wiped her memory with a kiss in the theatrical cut for number two, it worked because he was doing it to protect her. He realized he'd made a mistake, he learned from it, and it was less problematic for her to have her memory wiped than it would be for her to do it. The idea here was that, well, she just sort of internalized it, and it was a subconscious memory, but she couldn't really think about it. And they brought it out. If you listen to the commentary on the DVD, one of the co-writers, Mark Rosenthal, says that they thought it'd be funny to basically give her the fantasy and then take it away again. To me, that's not funny. That's just mean. There's also a moment where Lex Luthor says, nobody's perfect. That ends the scene in this film. He says, oh, well, nobody's perfect. And they move on. To me, that felt like it was harsh editing on the cut of the call out to the first film where he says, nobody's perfect. Well, almost nobody. Now, if they'd had him say nobody's perfect and then pause and not say anything, that could really work as a moment of character development. His interactions with Superman have convinced him he's not perfect. And maybe he starts to think Superman is, but he wouldn't admit it. But if he doesn't follow it up, then you could do it that way. That's not the way it's played. It's played as a straight-up joke. Again, the commentary reveals it was a call-out to Billy Wilder and Some Like It Hot, and not a call-out to the original film. But they do manage to get the film finished. Instead of having Chris Reeve play the Nuclear Man clone that Lex Luthor creates and fight it the whole time, this clone being able to change size, change shape, and have this huge special effects thing so that every fight scene could be different, they finished it with just Mark Pillow in the role and reduced the special effects budget that way. So the finished film that Sidney Fury turned in was 134 minutes long. Now, either Canon Films or Warner Brothers Studios cut it down to 89 minutes and 52 seconds, pulling out scenes that are absolutely required for the plot to make sense. A full third of the film is missing. For example, the boy Jeremy in the theatrical cut sends Superman a letter asking for help, and the follow-up is, I just wish he'd said yes. We haven't seen a response from Superman at all. It follows immediately. It's a little confusing. In the deleted scenes, 
there's about 31 minutes worth on the DVD of the 45 or so that are missing, we see Superman took the time to go to Jeremy's school and answer him right there saying that, you know, he took a vow to let Earth develop on its own. He's here to help, not to guide and to steer. We also lose Lex Luthor's first attempt to create a nuclear man, which was kind of a take on Bizarro. He's a little bit pale, pretty simple-minded. It is very close to the 1950s and 60s Bizarro and everything but the angular look and feel, right down to his origin as a failed clone of Superman. And the first one didn't work out, and it fails as a pile of charcoal. Before it does that, that nuclear man meets Lacey when Clark and Lacey are at a nightclub following up on this series of articles he's supposed to write, and becomes infatuated with her. Without that, the audience doesn't understand why Lex is piling a pile of charcoal into his experiment to make the nuclear man. That was the remnants of the first, and that's why this nuclear man is infatuated with Lacey, and she gets involved in the climax. One of the other things that they did when they were recutting the film is rearrange the final scenes. Now, the main thematic element with nuclear disarmament is the main plot point of this film. So all the conventional filmmaking and any wisdom says that's the plot that should be resolved last, since anything after it is going to make the movie feel long because the movie feels like it's over. The main point is finished. Now, the original cut ended with that speech, and this is the one that references both The Day the Earth Stood Still and Dwight Eisenhower, and that comes after Lex and Lenny are rounded up. But now he makes a speech first and then goes to get Lex and Lenny, which just makes that sequence seem to drag out a little bit. It's played for comedy. And you take this element that is supposed to be the first time a Christopher Reeve film is making a social commentary and trying to challenge people to think. And you undercut that message and you undercut the feeling of the main plot by throwing in these almost purely comedic scenes afterwards. The original cut also had a scene that's now missing that tied up Lacey's plotline and puts her on a new path to the future. They don't really seem to have a clear reason for why they took that 134-minute cut and brought it down to 90 minutes. It's happened in some movies because they just didn't have the money to finish it. That's not the case here. Fury handed in a finished film, so the special effects were done. Granted, some of that footage with the finished special effects is lost, and all we have is the initial screen test ones left, so we're not going to ever see a director's cut, because as far as anyone could tell, that footage no longer exists. But the studios had a complete cut with all the finished special effects. My personal suspicion is that either Canon or Warner Studios, or possibly both of them, looked at how cheap it looked in the finished product, how bad the special effects were, and realized that if they were going to make any money off this thing, it was going to be made an opening weekend. By cutting the film from 134 minutes down below the 90-minute mark, then the large multiplexes would get in one more screening per night in that opening weekend and that opening Tuesday, which would be enough to help offset the cost, because they were expecting to lose money. If you get a few more tickets sold for a few more screenings before word gets out, because at the time it really was word of mouth, not word of internet, then you can cut your losses. Now, some parts of the movie still work. There's an early scene where Clark is selling the farm, now that both of his parents have passed away, and it's a pretty nice sequence. The death of Ma Kent was done in a line of dialogue in Superman 3, if you go back to the high school reunion scene. And of course, Jonathan died in the original. All three of Perry White scenes work, even though there are only three of them, and they're fairly short, but Jackie Cooper plays it well. In general, the cast do play their parts well. It doesn't always seem like it, because a lot of the important character moments are missing. It doesn't always seem like that with the case of Mark Pillow, because the way he was cast was not the way the writers envisioned the character at all. So what he had to work with 
wasn't a lot to begin with, and he was a pretty inexperienced actor. But the concept is there, and it's clearly written by people who love the comics that were being published in the 1950s and 60s. They even used the old logo for the Superman word in Superman 4. Now, for years I said this was the worst of the series. After listening quite regularly to the Oh Yeah podcast with Alt Baltazar, Franco, and John Centris, well, Art and Franco have been making the Superman Family Adventures, which is a series of comics that would now be wrapped up. It has another time of this recording, since this was recorded on March 29th, 2013. In their podcast, Art Baltazar has made a strong case that Superman 4 is actually a stronger film than Superman 3. And after listening to him discuss it, I'm actually more inclined to agree with him. Looking at Superman 3, as I said, that's the movie the filmmakers wanted to make with that cast. And it's just the wrong plot for a Superman film, and it never could be turned into something that really works with that cast. But Superman 4, although the finished product is very weak, could be salvaged. The concept is stronger. It just lacked a budget. There's just a couple of scenes that I think could have been rewritten. And it did need tighter directing and editing, especially in the farcical sequence for the double date. But this did have a workable concept, it just had a poor execution, largely due to the very last minute change in the budget. Now, ultimately, this one bombed at the box office. As we've said before, as a rule of thumb, a movie needs to take in three times its budget before it's really considered profitable. So this budget of $17 million means it needed to bring in $51 million in the gross before it is expected to be profitable. Instead, it took in less than $16 million. So it didn't even make back the budget, let alone three times the budget. As a result, this killed the Superman film franchise for about 19 years. Not only that, that is what put the final nail in the coffin for Canon Films' Spider-Man project. That's when they decided that they were not touching it and just canned it. And these losses on something that Canon put a lot of hopes on turned into largely why Canon Films collapsed completely. In the end, James Cameron bought the rights directly from Canon, so he wasn't tied to any studio, and when he did make Spider-Man, he would have made it the way he wanted to. As I said, if you go around online, you can find Cameron's script. There's a few scenes he refused to budge on that a few studios refused to produce. And I think anyone who's read that can probably see the scenes I'm talking about and would probably understand why James Cameron's Spider-Man never did get made. But that would be a subject for another series of podcasts. That's pretty much all there is for Superman 4, and I hope you'll join us again next month when we discuss Superman Returns, which is, as mentioned earlier, the other theatrical version of Superman 3. Please join us then.